Was that my mic? My heart beating or something? Anybody hear the drums? Yeah, mark that down. See how many we have at our 15th anniversary here in a couple weeks. Good morning. Glad you're here. A lot of uh, families of our graduating seniors are here, and we're grateful that you're present and hope that you uh, will enjoy um, all the festivities around that. This is a big deal for y'all, and, and we're grateful, and we're grateful to be the home church of these young people. And no matter where you go from here, your home church will always be the same. It's going to be here at Valley View, and they're going to be praying for you. We're going to be thinking about you every step of the way, watching you as you grow. And so just know that wherever you go, you're going to be part of great churches, but this is always your home church. So I hope everybody's planning to stay and just celebrate with them and, and rejoice with them. Don't forget, a couple weeks from now, we have this 15th anniversary celebration thing. If, if, you, if you feel uncomfortable or if you feel like uh, you, you, you can't be there at the 2 o'clock worship service, there will be a 10 o'clock one, okay? So don't worry about that. And David Gibson will be preaching there too. But at 2 o'clock, our main service of the day, followed by that family fun day, lots of fun activities to celebrate the fact that God has blessed this church for 15 years, and we're looking for another 125 more, something like that, you know, until the Lord comes. So be part of that. It, it'll be fun. There'll be more food than you could possibly eat, and we're going to enjoy our time together. So a couple weeks, come back and, and be with us for that. Uh, for the college students and any of the seniors who just graduated, Tuesday meal will be Cliff Hudson's famous barbecue. Best stuff in the world. He's making that for our college students. So Tuesday, come and have some barbecue with us and, and enjoy a four-minute devotional and our fellowship together as we pray for you with the finals coming up. I know our college students, they need lots and lots and lots and lots of prayer for their finals. So Matthew 17 is where we're going to be in just a moment. Let's sing together. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. Did Terry really go over 40 minutes last week? Is that true? You don't remember you were sleeping? Okay, I, I get it, I get it. I'm not the only one. Uh, that was just an interesting tidbit, and so I'm, that's the kind of guy I want to put in there in my absence, make you hungry for me to come back. Anyway. One of, the, one of the great challenges of parenting uh, that's hard to get right is to know when to step in and help and when to let them experience the challenges that face them. Most often I see this uh, mistake made like in Cub Scouts. Cub Scouts, I remember this, you had the Pinewood Derby where the kid is supposed to learn how to make this car out of pine wood. It's really easy to carve, and he's supposed to make, but when you see the dad's carrying the locked box in with him, and that kid has never seen that car before, he's never touched it, and when he's trying to touch it to put it on the entry table, the dad's saying, don't touch it, don't touch it, because dad made the perfect car. 
He wants to win for his son, and he doesn't want his son to have anything to do with that car. It's going to look better if he does it. He makes it aerodynamic, and he makes it perfect, and it wins, and the dad's over there celebrating. It's Junior's car, right? Well, he's never touched it. You might see this like at a science competition. I have to commend some parents here. We've talked about this in recent times. Said to his son, I'm going to help you with your science experiment, but I'm not going to do it for you. And because of that, you're probably not going to win. Because the winning one, often, the parents do it. That winning essay, when you hear it read, you're like, that kid's never spoken those words in his life. He doesn't even know those words. Yeah, I know, it's a little weird. And most recently, you've probably noticed this, this college controversy where these parents did some things behind the scenes to get their kids into college. We're stepping in and doing things for our kids when really we should let them struggle through it. But knowing when to do that and how to do that is always a delicate, delicate thing. And many times we fail at this. In our text today, it's a very unique situation in Matthew chapter 17 because here Jesus has been sent by the Father into the world to live a sinless life and to provide atonement for us in our sins. He does it perfectly, he does it beautifully, and God is very proud of him. But don't you know sometimes as God watches his son's life unfold, don't you know sometimes... The father is, I'm using this in a rough sense, tempted to intervene just a time or two. Wouldn't you be drawn to say, I want to squash that Sadducee like a bug? Wouldn't you want to if you're, if you're God up there watching this unfold? And you see Pilate, and you're like, wouldn't you like to flex your, your divine bicep in front of Pilate? And do, but he doesn't. He steps back. He makes sure that he doesn't intervene too much. He's always present, but he doesn't intervene too much in the life of his son as it unfolds. But there is one time, and it must be significant, because parents, we should only jump in and really do something. you got that bully coming up at your kid, and you know about the bullying going on, and all that's within you, you want to go to school with him and beat the snot out of that punk. You want to, you know you do, but you can't. You can't do that. It makes things worse. You want to go talk to that coach and say, why are you treating my kid this way? you got a conflict coming up, and you want to jump in there and do it for your kid. You can't do that. They've got to learn through this process. And God does that too, but there's one time. One time that's so important and so significant that God says, I'm going to, as I direct this, sto this story, I'm going to come down and make an appearance myself, and I'm going to give myself a speaking part. God actually speaks. He does that a couple of times, but only once does he come down and interject himself into the story. It must be important, it must be significant for God to actually part the heavens and make an appearance. And so today in this story, we see it. Matthew chapter 17. And the funny thing is, it wasn't for Jesus at all. It was for the disciples. You know, the Gospels are not real chronologically ordered. It's usually put in the order of purpose of the author. But in Matthew chapter 17, as in the other two recordings of this story, there's a time stamp put on it. And after six days, and after six days, very rarely do we put a time thing on the story of Jesus. And so this one is meant to make us go, okay, what just happened back there? Because this next story is in relationship to that. What just happened back there? Here's what happened. Peter was able to confess. Peter was able to confess Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. 
And then Peter, uh, Jesus immediately started filling in what the mission of that Messiah, the Son of God, was. It is to suffer. It is to die. It is to be raised from the dead. And this doesn't fit any of Peter's categories. It doesn't fit any of the readings that he's heard from Moses and the prophets. It doesn't fit any of that. The job description Jesus gives of himself is, doesn't mesh with the one that Peter has dreamed of all his life. And so he says, hold it just a minute, Jesus. That's not right. Let me correct you. Listen, when you step in, and correct Jesus, you are on some really slippery ground. And a lot of times we do this. We don't think Scripture's quite accurate. We, can, we have a better understanding of what we should do here. Be very careful when that happens. But he does it. And then Jesus backs up and rebukes him in front of the others, and he says, listen, not only am I going to suffer and die, but if you're going to follow me, you are going to take up a cross. You're going to deny yourself, and you're going to follow me. And if you have to lose ground in this life in order to maintain a hold of the next one, you'll do that too. Let me tell you, this is what's ahead for you. Whoa, and suddenly cognitive dissonance overtakes all the disciples. This is not what we expected. This is not what we envisioned. This is not, this is not the picture we had painted in our minds. When you sign on to the Christian faith, I want to highlight all the wonderful things you're going to receive, that Ephesians 1 outline of all the spiritual blessings that are in Christ. You have every single one of them. And like tonight at our singing, please come back for our singing. It's going to be a wonderful night. Psalm 103, David says, here's all the reasons, the benefits God gives you and why you should praise him. That's wonderful and it makes a great sermon, but don't stop there. If you're going to live the Christian life, you're going to have to be willing to suffer. You're going to have to be willing to say to yourself, no, what I really want to do, I can't because my Lord says not to, and he wants me to do it this way. And I've got to say no to myself, and I've got to face rejection from the world, and I've got to lose my spot in the world a little bit in order to maintain the one in heaven. That comes along with the Christian faith too. Wow, I tell you, this was heavy stuff to be dropped on the, the disciples all at once. All at once they're told, all this stuff they had, in their minds, the forecast of Jesus was different than theirs. They thought it's going to be sunny in 75 all the way to our cabinet position in the new government. And Jesus says, no, the forecast is storm, 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 just ahead. And it doesn't square with their heads. What are you going to do? And that's when there's this weird, eerie silence of six days. And it's not just six days missing. There's lots of days missing in the life of Jesus, but it's marked by all the Gospels, six days. Uh, enter here for you SpongeBob fans, a thing across the screen that says six days later. Or if you are, if you are one of the in-game people, you know that there's a screen comes on this newest movie. This is not a spoiler alert. It doesn't hurt anything. It just says five years later. All it does is it marks there's an impasse. What... What we just left continues for another five years, and it's a sad thing in the end game thing. It's a really forlorn kind of, right? Six days, there's this impasse between Peter and Jesus. In fact, between all the apostles and Jesus. They've got to regroup. They've got to refigure out, is this really what we signed on for? This, this thing that we thought was going to happen isn't what's really going to happen. There's going to be suffering here. There's going to be some hard decisions in my life. There's going to be some difficult going. There's going to be some muddy traveling. Are we really going to be in for this? And the same thing exists for you. 
There are wonderful things and wonderful reasons about being a Christian. But there are some difficult challenges that will inevitably face you, and you cannot pick the good and leave the bad. You cannot call this bones and chunk them and enjoy the chicken. You can't do that. It all goes together in one big bucket, right? If you want the kingdom, you have to separate yourself and distance from the world. Six days. There's no teaching. There's no movement in the plan of God. There's no miracles. Six days, the disciples are looking inward. Am I willing to really pay this price? I know I confessed him as Lord, but that's not what I expected him to be. Six days, Jesus tries to continue teaching this message. And for six days, they don't know if they can grapple with this or not. They don't know if they can accept this or not. And there's this impasse, and you can see it in the pouting of Peter. And you can see it in the rest of them listening to Jesus, but with a distant look in their eyes. And Jesus sees it as clearly as anybody. Something has to be done. So what do I do? He, do, he says, Peter, James, John, you're with me. You come with me. We're taking a hike. I like hiking. It's a good spiritual exercise. More on that in a minute. He takes this hike, no easy thing, up this high mountain. And he, Jesus, and the three disciples are by themselves, and something really profound happens First of all, it says Jesus is transfigured. The word is metamorphosizes. I don't know that you can make that a verb, but I'm going to. He was transfigured. Now, Jesus isn't changed here. Not really. This is who he is. There's this glow that comes from within. It's not a reflection from the sun shining down on him. No, no, no. This, this is a glow that comes from within him. For just a little while, the human disguise of flesh is kind of replaced by who Jesus really is. This is a review of where Jesus has been. This is a preview of where he's going. This is who Jesus is, only he's disguised by human flesh, and he's disguised so fully that you can forget he's really God. And sometimes we can do the same thing. We can forget that this man we follow is not just a man. He is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. And if you forget that, you'll start debating him instead of listening to him. You'll start challenging him, and you'll start wondering whether you agree with him when it really does doesn't matter. He's the Son of God, and you better get that in your head. Before he became human flesh, he already was Jesus. Matthew or John chapter 17 in that prayer, you remember this in the garden, now Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You better know who this Jesus is. He didn't come to earth and start. He never started at all. He always was. There's a little confusion. I'm not sure why they chose Son of God as his title because Son usually means I came from a father. And not only that, but I'm younger than the father. Neither one of those is true of the Son of God. He didn't come from God. He always has been. And in fact, he's not younger at all. He's the same age. There is no age. He's always had a beginning. He was in the beginning with the Father. And so these guys have been thinking that he's a human Jesus, and he is, but that's not all he is. Suddenly they see the glow of the glory that he had before he came to earth. This is the pre-existent Jesus, but this is also the glow of what he'll be after his work is done. He's going to return to it. The glory is there, but it's boxed in human flesh, and it can be tricky. It can fool you into thinking he's just human, and he ain't. 
They need a view of Jesus that knows who he is and what he's done, and so do you. In Romans 12, we're told the same thing. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable form of service. And do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have metamorphosis. You have a metamorphosis to do too, and you'll never do it if you don't do it in view of God's mercy. Before he ever asked you to take up your cross, he died on his He did this first, and then he asked you to take up yours. And if you don't get that right, you will struggle with why you should have to obey him. You'll struggle with his authority, and why should he have a say in what I do? I'll tell you why. Because he died for you first. Before he ever asked anything of you, he died for you first. Don't ever leave that out. Don't ever leave that out. Now, I'm a human responsibility preacher. Harding told me that, and they tried to change me, and I just couldn't change it. What I mean by that is I just don't talk a lot about grace and what God's done unless the text says so. If I go on to a human responsibility text, I'll talk about all that you need to do. And sometimes, guys, I make a mistake and I make you think that you're trying, you have to earn your way. Nothing's further from the truth. But I... The argument I made was, you see, I preach in a worship service, and before I ever preach, we take the Lord's Supper. And that's going to happen every Lord's Day until the Lord comes. There's not to be our public morning worship on Sunday without the Lord's Supper first. To let you know that before we ever get started, the only reason we have a right to be here and the only reason we're equipped to be able to worship God and the only reason we're going to talk about our response to him is because of what he's already done for us. Let's put this in the proper order, church. Before we ever can praise him, we must acknowledge him as Lord. It's by his grace that we have a right to be here. That's the truth, and it needs to be that way every time. Those churches that have the Lord's Supper second, they're a little bit fallen from grace. I'm kidding about that, by the way. But these people are saying, first of all, he says, I'm struggling with you. You guys are not listening to me in this this six-day struggle you're having. I need to fix it. He takes him up on a mountain, and he's transfigured, and suddenly they realize just who he is. It's one thing to say Jesus is Lord. It's another thing to make him Lord. Second thing that happens is that there's two people appear with him, Moses and Elijah. All sorts of reasons why it's these two. But these are the greatest influences on the disciples at this point, and they, they, keep, they keep comparing Jesus to Moses and Elijah and trying to figure out where he fits. And this is like a relay race. Moses handed on the baton to Elijah as the prophets, and the prophet handed him on to Jesus. And listen, here's the thing. We are in this race, and the only one left standing at the end of the story is Jesus. Whatever alternative facts you have being whispered in your ear from blogs and, 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 and all these influences in your life, any one of them should be put on the transfiguration story for you. We don't struggle with Moses and Elijah. We might struggle with, let's say, maybe, maybe there's a donkey and an elephant there. We Republican or Democrat? You're neither. You're Christian. When you, start, when you start pitting people on these and you start, well, this party has this and this party has it. Listen, the thing is, whatever it is that your greatest influences in life, you need to put them up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And you need to put Jesus right in the middle. And if it's boring and you still see three, you need to spend more time with the Lord. Because by the time you're done, the only one you should see is not Nancy Pelosi and not Rush Limbaugh. It should be Jesus alone. And that's what guides everything that you do for life and doctrine and for your own morality. It comes from him. 
And so he was joined by these two, but only one of them remains. And there's one last thing that happens on that mountain. Peter feels the pressure. It's interesting in the Greek, it says, Peter answered. Nobody asked anything. There was not a question there. There's an event that happens, and then Peter feels the pressure. He's got to speak into it. You ever been in those moments where you think, somebody needs to say something, I'm going to say something. If you're in a moment like that, your best bet is to keep your mouth shut. Because you always end up saying something stupid. Don't say anything. Peter shouldn't have said anything, but he decided, you know what, I want to stay up here. I don't blame him. I would too. We'll talk about that in just a second. And you guys are equal. Let me build a shelter for each one of you. And God, while Peter is still speaking, God comes down in a cloud. God's not waiting anymore. He's not sitting at a distance anymore. He's got to come down and clear this up. He comes down in this cloud that glows like the sun, and he speaks. The only speaking part besides baptism that God ever makes in the life of Jesus, and it's profound. And every time, listen, every time God comes down in a cloud and speaks, everybody says, uh, don't ever do that again. Don't ever do that again. And he only has to do it once. And he says three things, all of which have been said before. First of all, you are my son. Psalm 2, a royal psalm where he's saying to them, this is my king. Second, Isaiah 42.1, with him I am well pleased. This is the suffering servant. However you make the king and suffering servant become one becomes a struggle. And then the last thing is, guys, listen to him. You're debating, Peter, in your mind. I don't know, is Jesus saying right or is what I've always been hearing right? You're debating in your head and you're talking. Quit talking, quit debating, and listen to the Lord. Church, we need to quit listening to all these other things when it comes to all church stuff and all that we do and listen to him. That's the one we take our words from. One person. Makes it easy. God gives his endorsement. We've got to figure out, we've got to know who Jesus is. We've got to let him be the the voice and get rid of alternates, and then we need to listen to God. That's what he's saying to them on the Mount of Transfiguration. And before they know it, it's all over. It's back to normal. The back to normal Jesus, the human Jesus, kind of taps them and says, guys, it's okay, don't be afraid. But as we go back down this mountain, don't tell anybody about what you saw until I've been raised from the dead. He puts a gag order on the apostles. A temporary time out of discussion. And the reason is you cannot really understand transfiguration until you've experienced resurrection. You can't. You've got to put them both together. And until you do, you'll be speaking ignorance. So basically he says, don't talk about this anymore until you listen to me enough to know what this is. Do they get the message? And the answer is yes. He begins his teaching. But I want you to listen to what Peter says later on. Second Peter chapter 1. For we do not follow cleverly invented stories or myths. We may known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were, we were eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was heard, spoke, born to him by the majestic glory, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from him uh, from heaven and we were with him on the holy mountain and we have the words of the prophets made more certain. You know what Peter's saying? And by the way, before this he says, I'm going to keep repeating this. 
I'm going to remind you of what he said. I'm going to keep reminding you of what I said. Uh, and I know, he says, I, got, I, I can hear Peter with these people going up. You've said this before. And Peter says, I know, I'm going to say it again. And then after I'm dead, I'm going to make sure you hear it again. And do you know why we keep going over the, the, the Bible classes? Do you know why after years and years we keep having Bible classes? And do you know why all our sermons need to be rooted in the text? And if it's not rooted in the text, it shouldn't be preached? Because the only words that matter are his words. The only words that matter are God's. And so keep going over them and keep reminding them, let them sink further and further into your life. He said, the mountain taught me that. The mountain taught me that. These are the words of life. Keep reminding them of them. Now, we also are on the top of the mountain, so here's the question, what's in this for us? We are escorted, given a front row seat at the Transfiguration Mountain. We get to witness this through the text, and we are to understand this that way. We become eyewitnesses, sort of. Conversion is a process, and it's not an isolated moment. Now, don't get me wrong in this, because there is a distinct beginning. There is a beginning. There's a moment when you decide, I believe in this story so much, I'm going to commit to it, and I'm going to confess the name of Jesus, and I'm going to be immersed in the waters of baptism. And that's where salvation's point starts. That's where you're right with God. But listen, you won't stay there. You'll have many conversions throughout your life. You'll have these moments when the Bible sinks in a little more, and that verse that you thought you always knew, ten years later, you'll know it better. I hear this from Bill Barry all the time. He says, the older you get, the more you understand the Bible. And I looked at him, and I said, you must understand a lot. <laughs> and he's right. The more you get in there, the more it sinks in, and the more you realize when this uh, situation's facing me, and I'm challenged whether I really believe it or not, that's when it gets serious, right? And conversion happens as a process. Peter had so many things. He heard Jesus heal people. He saw him still the storms. He saw him do amazing things, and yet it wasn't as much as the transfiguration, and that wasn't as much as the resurrection. And as you go through life, you need to continue growing and maturing and having these moments where it's so significant that you're no longer who you once were. You have these moments in your life when you realize that what you've always thought wasn't really true, and you start becoming more obedient, and you grow. It's an amazing experience. I've heard a lot of Christians say, should I be baptized again now that I know more? No! You should be converted over and over and over and over again all your life. If you're still where you were when you were first baptized, you're not where you need to be. There needs to be growth and maturing, which is why each step is an important thing. And by the way, <clears throat> there are some moments when the steps are humongous. Sometimes you don't take a couple steps. Sometimes you, you take giant leaps. Those moments when the words of Jesus challenge you most and cause you the most suffering, those are the moments you grow by leaps and bounds. And this morning we're celebrating one of them. For our high school students, they've been growing up in a family that brings them to church. Listen, from here, this moment, you're going to decide in the months to come whether this is real or whether it's my mommy and daddy's faith. You're going to decide for yourself when you get up on Sunday morning whether you go or not. And you're going to have that choice and nobody's going to make you. You decide and suddenly this becomes another conversion moment for you. This is why our college ministry is so very important. They're at a time period where a lot of people quit converting and go back to their pre-conversion lives. And we're saying not on our watch. Not on our watch. No, we're not going to let this happen, at least not without great opportunities and challenges for you. So we say to them, we want to be around you as much as we can and get to know you as best we can because we want to be that link that leads you to the next conversion process wherever you go. It's a long-going thing.
Those moments come with the greatest struggle and you feel like you're trudging your way and you take a few days, you take a six-day break to decide, am I serious about my Christian faith or not? I met one of these Christian heroes this past week. It was interesting, we were eating seafood. I, I can't remember what it was, shrimp and something else. It was alligator. Never had alligator before. Now I have. Anyway, so as we were getting there, and he said, uh, 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 the guy, guy we are eating with, he said, you need to ask him this. So I asked him. He recently had a daughter marry another woman. Raised in the church. Knew the truth. But his daughter decided, when she went to a college that this professor had this PhD and knew better that there's nothing wrong with a woman marrying a woman. But in his family and in his faith and in his scripture that he studied and that he's known all his life, there's nothing right about that. You can't do this. Okay, but your daughter's about to do this. What are you going to do about it? It's not about this being the ideal or what you'd prefer, but she's going to do it, so what are you going to do? And that's when I started asking Chris, is it okay to ask personal questions? Yeah, go ahead. I said, well, how did you make those decisions? He said, it was tough, and we had these conversations. I sat her down, and I said, this is not what Scripture has. This is not what God wants you to do. I know that for sure. You struggle with what God's will for your life is. This isn't one thing that you should struggle with. You get married, I will not come to the wedding. And after you get married, when you come home, she can't be with you. Not in my house. Now, some of you are going to be repulsed by that, and I know that. And I, I struggled with my own head. How in the world can you say that? But here's the deal. She looked, he looked at her. She was a Christian and said, I will not love you more than my Lord. Now, listen, I know that's going to be abrasive to some of you. That's like sandpaper in your brain. I get it. But you know that verse where Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to divide families. You remember that verse? I came and you have to love me more than your mom and dad. You have to hate them in comparison. You remember those verses? This is when that makes sense. He did not do this in arrogance and loudness and, and boisterous. He did this weeping the whole time. He's a Texan in Wranglers and cowboy boots. This boy don't cry. But with his daughter, he wept. That's when you decide, am I in on this or not? And you see, this whole process that breaks his heart, it still does to this day because the ramifications are long-term. It's not something simple, one decision and it's over. It's a decision you have to bear with and keep consistent the rest of your life. And it burdens you and it breaks your heart. But when you become a believer, these are the kinds of decisions where you decide, am I going to be transformed and metamorphosized or am I going to stay elementary? What am I going to do? You grow by leaps and bounds. And can I tell you one other thing that I'm proud of Valley View for? There are moments, whatever you do in this story, whatever you do, keep Jesus central. Don't leave. What I love about the apostles is they struggle for six days. They don't leave Jesus. They stay with him. And I'm going to say to you, even while you're struggling with your, with your commitment to God, and you're going to, you're going to have seasons of struggle with your faith, don't give up coming to church. It is most important for you to do this. The Hebrew writer says, don't forsake the assembling. And he's not doing this because you get two misses and then you're going to hell. No. 
He's saying because that's how you stay focused on Jesus. That's how you keep him at the center of your vision. An example of this would be Psalm 73 where a man starts believing the world's message and starts believing what he sees in the world and he gets bitter and he gets angry at God and the church and he gets bitter because what benefit is it to be faithful? Look at the world, they're living the way they want to. Look at TV, they're all happy. They're all joyful, living rebellious lives. And, and, and I'm sitting here stuck with my going to church and, and denying myself. But then he comes, verse 17, into the assembly of the Lord. And confronts God and God confronts him and he clarifies his vision and he walks out of church and suddenly he says, oh, but now I know why I do this. None of us can separate ourselves from worship long without starting to believe what we see with our human eyes. Keep that vision clear. But once in a while, you have to climb a mountain. Once in a while, you have to have a moment where you separate yourself from the world. And Valley View does it this way. Once in a while, you have a church youth camp. And you take these kids and you take them away from everything that's familiar, where the cell phones don't work, and you plant them at church camp and you focus on Jesus a while and each other. And it reorients you again, just like having to take them up a mountain and give them... We do this, and we have a marriage retreat where we go to the links of the earth. It's Soto, but it feels like the links of the earth to be out in the middle of nowhere so we can draw close to one another and get this vision and get our... our because the thing is, we're getting distracted. And our greatest fear, when you're in one of these and you're drawing close to God and you're getting closer and closer to Him, you want to stay there. You want to be like Peter. Let's build three shelters. Let's stay here. But you can't. You've got to go back. But you know why? Because you enjoy this. You know why? Because you're afraid when you go back, the distractions are going to meet you, and once again, your vision is going to get unclear. That's what you're afraid of. Rightly so. But you need these moments. Your kids need church camp. It's not a luxury. It's almost a necessity. You need a marriage retreat. You need those moments where the church provides these opportunities or someone else does that meets these spiritual things like this. It takes you up a mountain and transfigures you a little more in a concentrated way and returns you back. We're not going to get done with this until resurrection. We're not going to be all that we're going to be until the Lord comes back and finishes the job. But we need to strive and struggle to be metamorphosized, to experience metamorphosis. It takes our cooperation, it takes God's too. In Valley View, at church here, what we have is we have some older saints who are further along the journey that give us inspiration, encouragement, and information when we need it. We have people behind us in the journey that we can be an encouragement to and a blessing. You have a responsibility here. You have people all around your same maturity level who are trying to challenge each other and sharpen each other. And every time we come together, we provide each other a bit, the benefit of a little bit clearer vision. We want you to become as much like Jesus as you can until God finishes the job. And you've got to keep moving to do it. If there's anyone here who's never decided, you know what, I want to join that journey. I want to be marching to Zion like the rest of the church. And I want to be part of this. Today is a great time to do it. You decide I want to name Jesus from my lips as the Lord and the one who's going to guide my journey. You're immersed in the waters of baptism and you rise to walk with every intention of continuing to make him Lord. But maybe some of us have gotten distracted. All the other things we see and all the alternative facts we're offered, we're starting to listen to them. And it gets us distracted. We need some clarity of vision, and we need the prayers. If you need the prayers of this church, we're ready for, to receive you in that. Whatever it takes 
to give a little clearer vision for yourself that the church as a community can do, we stand ready to receive you as we stand and as we sing.